0: We've looked at Genesis chapter 1, and and from that one week of creation, we've been reminded that what we believe about God and what we believe regarding our responsibility as His image bearers matters. And we've looked at Genesis chapter 2, and from the establishment of the one flesh institution, we've been reminded that our definition of marriage must remain consistent with God's definition of marriage since he's the one who created it. And we've looked at Genesis chapter 3, and, and from that one sin that inaugurated the fall, we've been reminded that we're all sinners in need of salvation. And now we arrive at Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we read about the first birth In Genesis chapter 4, we're introduced to the first sibling relationship. And in Genesis chapter 4, we have the record, the account of the very first murder. So, what should be our one focus today? Well, before we get into that, let me tell you a story. There was a man and his son who were on a, a fishing trip several miles from home one weekend. And at the son's insistence, they went to a a local rural congregation for worship on Sunday morning. And the father had forgotten to bring any cash with him. So when it came time for the collection plate to be passed, he reached into his pocket. He had a quarter, so he handed that to his son and let his son put that in the collection plate. And then when the service was over and they were walking back to the car, all the father did was complain the service was too long. The preacher was boring, which is nothing you'd ever hear here. And his son looked at him and said, Well, Dad, I thought it was all pretty good for the price of a quarter. You know, sometimes what we put in is what we get out. And so, in Genesis chapter 4, I think it's important for us to pay attention To the offering see we have no background on what life was like for Adam and Eve and their family once they were expelled from the garden all we know is that they started having children and those children come on the scene and they become the focus of the story and what you see here in Genesis chapter 4 is you see Cain and Abel the sons of Adam and Eve Engaging in an act of worship, and we don't know how they came to understand the need to bring an offering, but they understand it and they're doing it. And Cain and Abel both engaged in the first recorded act of worship in the entire Bible. But according to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, one of their offerings was more acceptable than the other offering. And it's from this origin story that we can develop much of our theology about worship. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. But to understand why one of their offerings was more acceptable than the other, we need to recall what Jesus said to the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, hold your place in Genesis chapter 4, but for just a moment you may want to flip over to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus encountered a Samaritan woman by a well, and their conversation became a theological discussion. The Samaritan woman, in effect, asked Jesus where the right physical location for worshiping God was located. She was appealing to the contradictory teachings of Jews and Samaritans at the moment. Both Jews and Samaritans— taught that there was a particular location for God to be worshipped based on something that is said in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 5, the Israelites were told, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. The Jews claimed that that place was Jerusalem, the temple mount, where David had desire to construct a temple for the Lord, and Solomon eventually fulfilled that, and it became the location where God was worshipped. But the Samaritans, because Jerusalem was not in their territory, Samaritans believed that that place, that that, that location, was on Mount Gerizim, which was actually near the town where Jesus and this woman were having this conversation. So this woman is asking, are we supposed to worship here or are we supposed to worship there? Which one is the correct place for worship? And Jesus responded to her question by saying this, beginning in verse 21. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And he clarified what he means when you look down at verse 23 in particular, where he says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And even though Jesus said this nearly 4,000 years after Cain and Abel, The truthfulness of his words are apparent even in their story. So let's unpack how Cain and Abel's offering teaches us to worship in spirit and in truth this morning. And what I want to do, though, is I want to reverse the order of what Jesus said. I want to focus on truth first. So let's talk about how Cain and Abel teach us that we must worship God in truth. You know, the first thing you might notice about Cain and Abel's story is that they brought an offering to the Lord. That was their act of worship. Now, we need to understand something about worshiping God in truth. To worship God in truth means worshiping him, as one commentator said, in harmony with the truth revealed in his holy scriptures. In other words, worshiping God in truth means that you worship Him according to His standards, according to His parameters, according to His guidelines, according to His instructions. That means that the Israelites were expected to worship God according to what He laid out in Mosaic Law. And that means that the church today is supposed to, or is expected to, worship God according to what He has provided in the New Testament what about Cain and Abel? They weren't under Mosaic law. They weren't and aren't a part of the church, per se. How were they to know how they were supposed to worship God? Well, Genesis does not preserve any record of God's instructions for them. But we can assume, based on what we know about God and his relationship with mankind from the rest of the bible that somewhere along the way these two brothers came to an understanding that an offering was something god expected of them and therefore was their responsibility and so here we are in genesis chapter 4 and we're told that cain brought an offering to the lord and we're told that abel also brought an offering to the lord in other words Both brothers fulfilled their worship responsibility because both brothers did what was expected of them to do to worship the Lord. But what likely stands out the most to readers of this text is that Cain and Abel's offerings were different. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3 specifies that Cain's offering was of the fruit of the ground. And Genesis chapter 4 and verse 4 specifies that Abel's offering was of his flock. Some contend that this difference, a a produce offering versus an animal offering, accounts for why Abel's offering was deemed more acceptable to God. But the Bible does not support that conclusion. See, the Hebrew term translated offering here is a term that means a gift. It's a fairly generic term. It's, it's not a term used in the Bible to uh, associate with anything that would atone for sin or, or anything that, that would uh, um, seek forgiveness in some capacity. It's the general term for an offering. It's a term that is elsewhere used in the Bible in relation to gifts you would give to a friend. It's a term for a gift you would give to honor nobility. It's a term simply expressing that you're giving something as a gift to represent the honor due the one you're giving it to. And in the Bible, this term that's translated offering here in Genesis chapter 4 is also used in Leviticus chapter 2 in reference to something that is called the grain offering. In fact, this term will appear 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, well, 10, to 10 or so times in Leviticus chapter 2 in reference to a grain offering. But that's not the only thing. There's at least one instance in the, the Bible where this term for offering will be used in reference to an animal sacrifice. It's a, the same word. It appears in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and verse 17, in reference to an animal offering that Eli's sons treated with contempt. And here's the point I'm trying to get across. This term for offering has nothing to do with atonement has nothing to do with sacrifices for sins. This term for offering is used both in reference to offerings that would involve produce and in terms of offerings that would involve animals. And so, this term for offering indicates that both Cain and Abel are correctly offering. Not only that, you should notice in the text that before Cain and Abel's offerings are described, their occupations are described. We're specifically told in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 2 that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. That means these two brothers were offering from their, from their respective pool of resources. And you know, there's a, a teaching in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 3 that says our offering to the Lord, which in the context of Corinthians is a reference to a financial gift, but it teaches that our offering should be according to our means. Cain works the ground. His means is produce. Abel keeps flocks. His means is a sheep. So both of these guys are also approaching God, with this offering, using their means. And I say all that to make the simple point that both Cain and Abel brought an appropriate offering to God. Neither one of them is wrong for what they brought to the Lord that day. Neither one of them was doing something unacceptable because both grain and sheep were acceptable to the Lord And both men brought of their means. And that clarification matters because it indicates that both Cain and Abel worshipped God in truth. What I mean is they brought an offering that was acceptable to the Lord in the sense of what it was, of its content. It was an appropriate offering based on its content. So both men worshiped God God in truth in that sense. And that's important, because if you don't worship God in truth, then your worship is invalid at best and immoral at worst. This is evident from a couple of stories you can come across in, in the Old Testament. Do you remember Aaron's two eldest sons? Their names were Nadab and Abihu. And they served as priests alongside their father, who was Israel's first high priest. One of their responsibilities was to preside over the altar of incense that was situated inside the tabernacle between in front of that veil between the holy place and the most holy place. They were expected to burn incense on that altar every morning and every evening. But according to Leviticus chapter 10 verse 1 and 2, Nadab and Abihu offered an authorized fire before the Lord. We don't exactly know what they did. But what we do know is that it was in direct violation of God's instructions. Because in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 9, the Lord said, You shall not offer unauthorized incense on the altar of incense. That's a pretty cut and dry statement. That's pretty simple. That's pretty easy to keep. But Nadab and Abihu ignored... God's guidelines on that aspect of worship, and the consequence of their failure to worship God in truth was the loss of their life. But they're not the only example we can appeal to. Do you remember the sin that initially led to God's rejection of King Saul? It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 13, particularly verses 8 through 14. He was preparing to go to war against the Philistines, but was waiting to initiate that battle until Samuel showed up and offered sacrifices to God that would give them God's blessing for the battle. Samuel was delayed for whatever reason, and Saul was impatient. So Saul decided, okay, I'll just go do the offerings myself. I'll make the sacrifices myself, which is something he was not authorized to do because he was not a priest. When Samuel finally showed up and saw what Saul had done, Samuel said, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. And the consequence of Saul's failure to worship God in truth was the loss of his throne for his descendants. These biblical examples make the same point. And that is that you can worship God sincerely, but if you do not worship Him biblically, then you are not worshiping Him correctly. You can worship God sincerely, but if you do not worship Him biblically, then you are not worshiping Him correctly. And I want you to think for a moment. How is it that people today can fail to worship God in truth. It happens when we don't adhere to God's standards when it comes to the time of our worship. The New Testament precedent is for the body of Christ to worship God together on the first day of the week, according to Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 and 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2. Now, some people probably think that the time of worship is 10 a.m. on a Sunday because that's just the way it's always been done, but that's not what it's about. It's about worshiping God on the first day of the week acknowledging His primacy in our week, but also in accordance with the day on which His Son rose from the grave. We can also fail to worship God in truth when we don't adhere to God's standards when it comes to the activities in our worship. The New Testament indicates that when we come together to worship Him, we are expected to do certain things. Among those are are studying God's Word, praying communally together, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and remembering the Lord's death by partaking of the Lord's Supper. That's not an exhaustive list, but it's a representative list of some of the things we're expected to do when we assemble together. And we can fail to worship God in truth when we don't adhere to God's standards when it comes to the administrators of our worship. The New Testament teaches that women should keep silent in the churches but should be in submission in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 34. That implies that there are specific roles in our worship assembly that the female gender is not allowed to assume. In our society that sounds chauvinistic. In our society, that sounds mean. but it's not about how our society feels, it's about what God said. And if we want to worship God in truth, then we have to follow all of his guidelines, whether or not our culture agrees with them. You see, obedient worship is the only acceptable form of worship in God's eyes. That's why Samuel said in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And the point is that worshiping God in truth is important. Even non-negotiable. But that's not the only thing we learn about worship from Cain and Abel. From Cain and Abel, we also learn that we must worship God in spirit, as Jesus declared in John chapter 4. Now, Cain and Abel both worshiped God in truth by engaging in an activity that was appropriate in his eyes. But they did not both worship God in spirit. And as Jesus said, we must do both. But what does it mean to worship in spirit? You go back to John chapter 4 again, and after Jesus had stated that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and before he reiterated that principle by saying those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, he inserted this one little phrase that might easily get overlooked in that text. So if you go back to John chapter 4, verse 24, notice that he took a moment to say, God is spirit. Now, why did he feel it necessary to say God is spirit right here? I think he said this because that Samaritan woman to whom he was talking was concerned about the physical place of worship. And Jesus wanted her to understand that God cannot be approached on a mere physical level because he is not a physical being. He is a spirit, and therefore our worship, which, which has physical components, since we are physical beings, but our worship must also possess a spiritual component in order for it to be pleasing to God, who is a spirit. Do you know what that means? That means worship is not just about doing the right thing, It's also about having the right mindset. As one commentator said, worship is not just offering sacrifices and tithes and observing ceremonial practices. Now, to put that in a New Testament context, worship is not just about assembling on the right day of the week, praising God with the right style, partaking of the Lord's Supper in the right frequency, or engaging in the right acts of worship. Those things are necessary to worship God in truth, but if they lack the right mindset then they are not done in spirit returning to Genesis 4 this becomes evident when you pay attention to how these two brothers offerings are described in Genesis chapter 4 and verse I have no idea what just happened there I guess we're done we'll see you later somebody really wants to get home today If we can get back to, uh, I can take it from here if you guys want. I assume I can take it from here. Apparently, I can't. Let's see here, Genesis chapter four, and verse three, when we are introduced to Cain's offering. Here's how it's described: Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. That's the extent of the description. It was just an ordinary offering, nothing special about it. It's not specifically criticized, but there's no description of extraordinary value either. In particular, you'll notice that there's no mention of first fruits. Admittedly, Cain was not under Mosaic law, but it's worth pointing out that Mosaic law instructed God's people in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 19 to bring the best of the first fruits of your ground into the house of the Lord your God. That was the expectation of Israel. And so when the Israelites... Received the Pentateuch and they looked at this text, they're expecting to see mention of first fruits. You know why? Because when you get to Abel's sacrifice, there's mention of firstborn. And that absence of a first fruit description, the fact that Cain's offering lacked any first fruits description, implies that his sacrifice was minimal, was dutiful, and half hearted. It means that he was doing the bare minimum he had to do. He was doing it out of obligation, and only half his heart was in it at best. But then you look at Abel's sacrifice, and Cain's offering gets some light shed on it. Because in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 4, Abel's offering is described this way. Abel, brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions." Abel's offering is detailed. Abel's offering is specific. And as a result, Abel's offering was extraordinary. Abel's offering conforms to the expectation that God set forth in Mosaic law. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 19 says, "'All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock, you shall dedicate to the Lord your God.'" Abel's fulfilling that before it's even written. And the fact that Abel's offering involved his flock's firstborn indicates that he had the right mindset to worship. Abel's offering was maximal. Abel's offering was sacrificial. Abel's offering was wholehearted. He did the absolute best he could with his offering, bringing the firstborn and bringing the fat portions. It was sacrificial. He was giving up his best, so that means the best wasn't left for him. And it was wholehearted. Abel was displaying through this offering just how important. God was to him. You see the difference between these two? You see, when, when the text says that the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering, he had no regard, it's because Abel worshipped God in spirit and Cain did not. So Abel's offering was more acceptable because he not only worshipped in truth, but he also worshipped in spirit where Cain was simply limited to worshiping in truth. Now, I want you to think for a moment. How can we be guilty today of failing to worship God in spirit? Well, I think it can happen when we approach worship with a what can I get out of this mentality as opposed to a what can I put into this mentality. The what can I get out of this mentality is focused on the self when it comes to worship, the what can I put into this mentality is focused on God when it comes to worship. If you leave worship every week complaining about all the things you didn't like, who was the focus of your worship? Maybe the topic of the sermon wasn't something you felt like you needed to hear. Instead of criticizing it, appreciate the fact that you had the opportunity to study God's Word and recognize the fact that somebody in that audience may have needed to hear that very specific message. Maybe the song selection is not what you would have chosen. Instead of criticizing it, pay attention to the words of those songs and how they praise and glorify God. Maybe the prayers were a little wordy or a little repetitious or a little long. Instead of criticizing them, focus on the fact that God invites us to communicate with him through prayer. And what a privilege that is. If you're focused on criticizing every aspect of worship because it doesn't meet your standards, well, guess what? You've chosen the wrong set of standards. Because our worship isn't about us. It's about him. Another way we... Can fail to worship in spirit is by approaching worship as an obligation rather than an opportunity. When we worship because it's our duty, then we have that exact same mindset as Cain. When we don't bring our heart to it, when all we are doing is checking the box so that we can go get lunch at Texas Roadhouse afterwards. Half the congregation's there most days. Then we're not doing it for the right reason. And we can fail to worship God in spirit when we take a minimalistic approach to our participation in worship. A minimalistic approach to worship can can refer to our attendance. A minimalistic approach to worship can refer to our giving, which is an aspect of our worship. A minimalistic approach to worship can address our singing. A minimalistic approach to worship can address our attention. When you arrive at this building to worship the Lord, are you trying to figure out the very least you can and have to do to worship God? Are you picking and choosing when you'll sing? When you'll participate in the prayer? Are you looking for how quickly you can get out the doors? Are you approaching it minimalistically, like Cain? And we can fail to worship God in spirit when we come to God with our, lefto- with our leftovers instead of our best. Remember those fat portions that Abel brought? He was bringing the best. And I know some of you hear me say that and you're like, yes. We need to talk more about the way people dress at worship. We need to focus on people bringing their Sunday best when they put on their clothes Sunday morning. And I'll be honest, that's not what I'm thinking about. Because God sees not as man sees, he looks at the heart. And so, my concern when I say we need to bring God our best instead of our leftovers is I'm focused on our time, I'm focused on our energy, I'm focused on our talents and our resources and our participation. We should be bringing our best in all those aspects. On Saturday, do you think about how important it is for you to be rested so that when you come here today, you can give God your best? Do you plan your calendars so that Sunday will be uninterrupted near the time of worship so that you won't be thinking about other things and you can give God your best? When we're bringing Him An ordinary, run-of-the-mill, everyday offering. We're no different than Cain. Because our God, who gave his best for us in Jesus Christ, deserves our best every Lord's Day. You see, we're quite capable of failing to worship God in spirit, just like Cain. And the lesson we should take away from him and Abel's offering is that heartfelt worship is the only acceptable form of worship in God's eyes. And that's why the Lord said in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. It was a problem in Israel, and it can still be a problem today. And the point is that worshiping God in spirit, just like worshiping him in truth, is non-negotiable. In closing, I I heard about a minister who invited a man to to attend worship services one Sunday. But the man said, "Why, why would I go to church? Why would I go to worship? And the minister replied, why wouldn't you go to worship? Well, it just so happens that man decided one morning that he would give it a shot but he hadn't been to a worship service in so long that he was a little bit uncomfortable. So he, he went to the building, and there was a coffee shop across the street, and he decided he would sit out there at the coffee shop and watch people go into the church building for a little while. And after he sat there for a while, the service began. He still didn't go in, and the service ended. He was still sitting at this coffee shop watching the building. And he saw the people exit. And some time later, he encountered that preacher again and told him that he came to, to that coffee shop and observed the church members going in and out of the building. And his observation was this. Those people were miserable going in, and they were miserable coming out. Why would I want to go there? You know what that tells me? That tells me that those people weren't worshiping in spirit and in truth. And we need to understand that our willingness to worship in spirit and in truth isn't just about us. It's about those out there in the world who will see the light through us. This morning, if you recognize that your worship has not met God's standard, whether that be in spirit or in truth, if you look at yourself and you see a Cain rather than an Abel, then we invite you to respond to this invitation. And if you need to put on Christ in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, we invite you to come as well while together we stand and sing.
1: and with the
0: Us, we want to especially uh, welcome you and thank you for being with us if you live in the community or just passing through we uh, we uh, certainly encourage you to be here with us anytime you can please stick around shake some of the hands around you and uh, thank you again for being here I want to invite everybody back for six o'clock service and if you haven't already please uh, snap that photo for the QR code in front of you and uh, give us a record of your attendance we'll sing um, I am a sheep in the supplement book number 148 And we'll be dismissed in prayer. I am a
1: sheep, and the Lord is my shepherd. Watch. constantly watching over me. We are his children and he is our